If you enjoy listening to Clinical Conversations, then maybe you'd enjoy membership with the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh and access to the evening medical updates and options to view the symposia in person or online. If you would like to learn more about this, then please go on to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh website for more information. Thank you. and welcome to this episode of Clinical Conversations. I'm Amy Priddo, a member of the Trainee and Members Committee, and today I am very pleased to be joined by Professor Patrick Kiley, who is a consultant rheumatologist working in St George's University Hospital NHS Foundation Trust in London. And in this podcast today, we'll be talking about rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, welcome, Dr Kiley. Hello, Amy. Yes, and it's very nice to talk to you and all of those of you who are listening. And rheumatoid is my favourite topic, so I'm more than happy to talk about it. Excellent. <laughs> so first of all, why are we talking about rheumatoid arthritis? Well, I think, so I've been a consultant since 1999, which is um, nearly 25 years. And the management of rheumatoid arthritis has changed so much for the better. Uh, when I joined as a consultant, the lot of the patient with rheumatoid was so miserable. There's so little could be done. The outcomes were appalling. Mortality was increased. Disability was high, and it was the most horrible, destructive, miserable disease. And this is the most lovely example of bench-to-bedside medicine, you know, the history of medicine and evolution over my career. Now, we haven't got it perfect for rheumatoid, but the lot of the patient now, newly diagnosed with rheumatoid, is just so much better than it was before. And I will be very happy now to go through with you some of the things which have changed and how we think about rheumatoid, how we treat it differently, and how we do bring people to a better pace, way better than historically. Not perfect, there's still work to be done, but it's such a nice story of history of medicine and evolution over my career. Sounds really promising and I'm looking forward to talking about it. Should we start by just saying what is rheumatoid arthritis? Well, gosh, that's, that's a big question. So it's an inflammatory arthritis, it's an immune-driven process, and it remains idiopathic. We don't know precisely what causes it. Uh, we suspect there's a genetic predisposition, and then a number of environmental factors occur, which tip the patient over into an autoreactive and then autoinflammatory and then pathological state. And that comes down to uh, septic burden, particularly gingival sepsis, uh, lung sepsis, smoking, and other unknown factors which lead to this process whereby the immune system targets something in a synovial joint. And that then leads to a self-perpetuating inflammatory arthritis, where you have synovitis, cartilage damage, and then bone erosions and loss of function of the joint. Many people call it rheumatoid disease rather than rheumatoid arthritis, because it's not just the synovial joint, which is a target. Also tendons and tendon sheaths, which are synovially lined, but the eye, uh, the peripheral nerves, the lungs, skin, cutaneous vasculitis, dry eyes, dry mouth, secondary Sjogren's, and a rare condition called Feltes, where you see splenomegaly. So it is a genuine um, systemic disorder, but the joints are at the centre of the trouble. Okay. And how would someone go about diagnosing rheumatoid arthritis? Okay, so like a lot of things in medicine, it comes down to pattern recognition. There is no single diagnostic test. So a lot of what we do is pattern recognition. 
you see a patient of a certain demographic, often in their fifth or sixth decade, more common in women, where the patient tells you their joints are stiff and painful and potentially swollen, and they don't feel well. They feel yuck, malaise, anorexia, fatigue, slight fever, maybe constitutional inflammation. Now, the key thing about joint stiffness and rheumatoid, like all other inflammatory arthritis, arthritides, is that it is worse after rest. So if you're sitting in your chair, the patient is talking to you about their joints being stiff, and they say to you, it's terrible in the morning when I wake up, I just can't get going. Or if I sit down during the day, I just can't get out of the chair because my knees are so stiff or my toes are so stiff. Then you're instantly thinking, oh, it's worse if you rest. That makes it an inflammatory type of joint stiffness. And then you're in the ballpark of inflammatory arthritis. And what type of inflammatory arthritis is it? And if it is predominantly small joints, metacarpal phalangeal joints, proximal interphalangeal joints, wrists, and the metatarsal phalangeal joints of the feet in the toes, and symmetrical, then you're thinking rheumatoid. You can then do the serology and look for rheumatoid factor and anti-cyclic citrullinated peptide CCP antibodies. And if they're positive, that is helpful. But there is actually no diagnostic test for rheumatoid. And we do have classification criteria, which are used to predefine a group of patients for clinical trials who are a subgroup of all the rheumatoids that come our way. Uh, but there's no actual single diagnostic test. It comes down to demographics, the pattern, symmetrical synovitis, predominantly of small joints, but also, of course, potentially involving the large joints. So that's how you diagnose it. Pattern recognition, index of suspicion, inflammatory arthritis, um, and potentially positive serology. If you're not sure whether there's joint inflammation or not because your clinical skills aren't quite there, or you can't decide if there's an over hypertrophy or not, then we use ultrasound. Ultrasound is a fabulous tool. Uh, Grayscale shows you how thick the synovium is, and it's abnormally thickened in rheumatoid. And power Doppler shows whether or not there's increased blood flow through the synovium, so-called hyperemia or vascularity. And that is also a feature of rheumatoid. One of the earliest signs on arthroscopy is hyperemia in the synovium, followed by hypertrophy. Great, that's really useful. Thank you. Are there any other types of inflammatory arthritis to look out for when you have a patient who's potentially... So mimics of rheumatoid. Well, certainly, yeah. I mean, psoriatic arthritis does have a symmetrical small joint polyarthritis presentation that looks like rheumatoid. This is classically rheumatoid factor and CCP antibody negative. In the connective tissue diseases, such as lupus, uh, you can again see a symmetrical, predominantly small joint arthralgia or arthritis. But in these conditions, the Intensity of inflammation is less. You rarely have ever see erosions. Gout is a great mimic, and although everyone talks about acute monoarticular flares in gout, you can have a variety of gout, which is just a grumbling chronic inflammatory arthritis, and it can catch many a rheumatologist out. So they're the sort of main differential diagnoses. Okay, thank you. I and mean, you've gone through the investigations already. So what are the principles of treatment of rheumatoid arthritis? Okay, so this is one of the great stories in the management of rheumatoid. So historically, too little was done too late. It's almost as if you had to earn your potentially toxic drug to get any treatment. Whereas now we talk about remission induction strategies, taking a leaf out of the chemotherapy cancer world, and then we talk about maintenance strategies. 
So remission induction means just that. We need to switch off the synovial inflammation rapidly and completely in everybody. Steroids are the only drug that works really quickly. So we generally do use a step-down steroid strategy, usually oral prednisone, sometimes intramuscular depimetrone, but enough to work quickly and get it all switched off. However, steroids are toxic and they are not designed or desirable as a long-term armamentarium drug for us. So we use them up front, short tapering dose to get people in remission. And in synchrony, we give a so-called disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drug, a conventional synthetic DMARD. And methotrexate is our anchor drug. Methotrexate has transformed the world of rheumatoid arthritis by giving it in a proper dose, not a tiny dose, but a proper dose, the range is 7.5 milligrams once a week to about 30 milligrams once a week. And we generally start at 15 milligrams once a week or maybe slightly higher. And then we have other disease-modifying drugs which we can give, such as hydroxychloroquine, sulfasalazine, leflunamide, and occasionally cyclosporine. So you get on top of this condition quickly. You want to see patients quickly, ideally within three months of symptom onset, start step-down steroids and immediately start disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drug therapy and then taper up the treatment until you get them into remission. Now, we have coined the term treat to target. And it's a really useful term because it means we select a target, which is a good target, such as remission, defined by a composite disease activity score, which takes into account swollen joints, tender joints, acute phase marker, ESR, CRP, and a global measure of the disease according to the patient. And we call that the DAS, a disease activity score, based on 28 joints. And we have certain specific numbers from that score, it's a numeric score. And we want to get the patient's disease activity score down to 2.6 or less, which defines remission. And so you start your treatment strategy, measure your disease activity score, and it's a high number. You then see them frequently, ideally every month, at the worst every two months or six weeks, but ideally every month. If they're not at target, which is remission, so you escalate therapy. See them in a month, give them the opportunity of treatment escalation if they're not at target, and then escalate again. And you keep going every month, escalating, changing, switching, until you reach target. And the target is remission. And what remission means to the patient is they come in through the door of the clinic and they say to you, I wouldn't know I had rheumatoid, apart from the fact I'm on your drugs. And that's my aim for every newly diagnosed rheumatoid. I wouldn't know I had rheumatoid, apart from the fact I'm on your drugs. Whereas before, their life was a mess. They couldn't get out of bed in the morning. They couldn't get to work. They were feeling ill. And their whole role as a spouse, as a parent, as a child, as a mortgage payer was in tatters. And so we really go hard with this disease. We induce remission with steroids and disease-modifying drugs. We treat to target. We see them frequently. And we get on top of it as fast as we can. And of course, we use joint injections as well as we need to with steroids. I was just going to ask, is the treat to target quite a new thing or has it been relatively new, relatively new? I should put in a plug here for the Glasgow Department of Rheumatology and my friend and colleague, Duncan Porter, who produced a fabulous trial called TICORA, T-I-C-O-R-A, many years ago now. But that was the first randomized control trial to show what was possible with treat to target versus conventional do very little, very infrequently, which was the then standard of care. So we have the Scottish rheumatologists in Glasgow in particular to thank for putting us on track for a treat-to-target aggressive intervention approach.
And that's now embodied by all the societies, the European League Against Rheumatism, the American College of Rheumatology, the British Society of Rheumatology, any international body that's got an opinion on how to treat rheumatoid talks about treat to target. Amazing. That sounds like a really good initiative. But of course, not everybody gets to what you want, which is called remission on the conventional synthetic disease modifying drugs. So here comes the second revolution in rheumatoid treatment, not just the strategy, which is treating to target, but the therapies we have available. Because back in the sort of 1980s and early 1990s, we just had the disease modifying drugs and we were learning how to use methotrexate more aggressively as it was felt to be at the time. And then along came the bench to bedside revolution of what we call biologic therapies. So these are not conventional suppressors of the immune system in a blanket form as methotrexate might do. These are targeted inhibitors of precise bits of the immune response. So cytokines, tumor necrosis factor alpha, interleukin-6, key pro-inflammatory cytokines produced in the rheumatoid joint. We now have monoclonal antibodies that can target and neutralize tumor necrosis factor alpha and interleukin-6. T cells, they become activated in rheumatoid, and to be fully activated, they need what's called co-stimulation, and that is done through a CD28, a particular pathway. And there is a natural inhibitor of co-stimulation of T cell activation called CTLA4, and bound to immunoglobulin, we call that a batacept, and that's one of our drugs, and that's very effective biologic therapy for rheumatoid. B cells are also important in rheumatoid, and for some patients, they're a principal driving part of the immune response. And we have a drug called rituximab, which targets CD20, which is a B cell surface marker, and that then inhibits the B cell functionality in rheumatoid. And then finally, if that's not enough, TNF inhibition, IL-6 inhibition, a batacept T cell co-stimulation inhibition, and rituximab, a B cell inhibition, that's four mode of actions, we now have a very recent class of drugs called Janus kinase inhibitors or JAK or JAK inhibitors. And these are small chemicals, they're not large antibodies. They're small chemicals which enter the cell and prevent cell signaling. So when the cytokine binds the cell surface, it sets about intracellular signaling to tell the nucleus what to do. So IL-6 binds to a cell, that sets about a sequence of Janus kinase activation pathway, which then tells the nucleus what to do. And the Janus kinase inhibitors prevent intracellular signaling. And they are a very new class of drugs. We now have four of them licensed for rheumatoid, um, small molecules, oral therapies, but again, expensive. So what NICE tell us to do is to start off with step-down steroids, methotrexate as our anchor drug, and other conventional synthetic DMARDs. And if you fail to respond to those in a treat-to-target escalation intense strategy, you can then move on to biologic therapies, either targeting TNF-alpha, CD20 on B-cells, IL-6, CTLA-4 co-stimulation inhibition of T-cells, or a JAK inhibitor. And so, you know, our choice of therapies is amazing. Our handicap is we don't know for the individual patient sitting in front of us whether what we call rheumatoid for them is principally driven by TNF, IL-6, B-cells, T-cells, or intracellular signaling. And so it's a little bit of trial and error as to which biologic or JAK inhibitor you choose first. And if that fails to work on the treat-to-target strategy, you then move on to another mode of action, biologic and so forth. 
There are a few things which help us kind of maybe select one patient is more likely to respond to this biologic versus another. But what we are yearning for, and we haven't yet got, is true personalised medicine, whereas the individual patient with rheumatoid has a blood sample taken or a hair sample given or whatever it is, an RNA analysis is done. You see what the cytokine profile or the cellular immunological profile of their version of rheumatoid is, and then you match that with the appropriate biologic inhibitor. And that's going to be the next chapter, which hopefully uh, will come in the next decade. Amazing. Out of interest, is there any research ongoing at the moment um, in relation to the genetics behind rheumatoid arthritis? And I mean, there's, there's a huge amount of money um, being poured into the research of rheumatoid. It's produced wonderful rewards. I'm not particularly close to genetic research, but certainly um, it is going on. There's a group um, in, in Manchester, led by Anne Barton, who's doing genetic research for rheumatoid, looking very hard at markers to predict whether you'll respond better or worse to particular modes of action of immune inhibition. And then the other thing to talk about, which is interesting, is that as rheumatologists, we are, if you like, guilty of being obsessed by inflammation. And indeed, inflammation is bad, and inflammation begets damage, and damage begets disability and loss of function. So that's kind of not inappropriate. But if you ask a patient what matters, they don't necessarily say inflammation in my CRP order. They talk about pain, they talk about energy, fatigue, sleep, emotional well-being, depression, and all sorts of important patient-reported outcome measures, which we are slightly in catch-up mode trying to measure and also help patients with in their journey with rheumatoid. Because if their disease is not successfully put into remission early on, then a number of potentially irreversible psychological factors will come into play. Now, in the disease activity score, which I mentioned, which is a composite score, and we aim for remission on the basis of the score, and there is one patient-reported outcome measure called a patient global score, which is rather blunt. But we're starting to incorporate other patient-reported outcome measures. There's one called the rheumatoid arthritis impact of disease, or the RAID score, which gives you seven domains. If the patient is scoring highly on any on one, two, three, or more of those domains, so we can start to introduce other techniques to help the quality of life, such as CBT for fatigue, or sleep hygiene education for poor sleep, or a range of painkillers for different types of pain. So there's peripheral pain and there's central pain. And central pain is a phenomenon of anybody who has chronic pain, and that responds to neuropathic painkillers such as pregabalin, amitriptyline, maybe duloxetine. So it's not just about the inflammation, and going back to the patient as a centre of our attention is vital and asking them about the impact of the disease on their quality of life through further composite scores is a very useful thing to do, and it further enhances um, your ability as a team to help our patients. Yeah. Do you ever find the side effects of these biologics and other medications worsen quality of life or have to be stopped, for example? So, okay, so side effects obviously are really, really important. So any immune suppressant drug increases your risk of serious infections. In an otherwise healthy non-smoking person, it's not a huge problem. We are aware there's an increased risk of infection. Patients stop their biologic if they have to go on to antibiotics for, for example, a chest infection or a urinary tract infection. But it doesn't generally derail the ability to keep a patient on a biologic therapy. Uh, there are some situations where patients can be very prone to infection and it can cause us problems. And we have to be very sensitive to that and potentially change the mode of action biologic if they're running into problems with infections. The JAK inhibitors are a new class of drug, and there are some concerns with JAK inhibitors. 
with uh, venous thromboembolic complications, which was found with the highest dose of one of them called tofacitinib. And at that particular dose, we don't use that for rheumatoid. age. And there are also theoretical concerns about an increased potential risk of cardiovascular adverse events, so atherogenic adverse events. Now, the thing to remember here is that the pro-inflammatory state increases your risk of cardiovascular adverse events. So in years gone by, when patients had uh, persistent inflammation, which was not suppressed, they would die of heart attacks and strokes from accelerated atherogenesis. So if you successfully suppress inflammation, you then reduce that increased burden of inflammation-driven cardiovascular events, such as heart attack and stroke. And therefore, any potential increase in cardiovascular events with a drug class, such as a jacket has to be a balance against where you would be without any treatment at all, which would probably be considerably worse. And this is a very complicated area trying to assess risk and potential long-term harm, and it's not yet completely understood. In the early days of biologics, we're also very concerned about cancer risk, but big registry studies have not really shown any increased risk of solid organ cancers with TNF inhibitors or other biologics. And indeed, there has actually been an absolute miracle, really, that in the last 24 years or so of anti-TNF therapy use, no significant derailing adverse effects have come to light which stop us using these drugs beyond the risk of serious infections, opportunistic infections, which are always on the lookout for. Okay. And for the sake of hospital colleagues um, working in acute medicine in, on the wards, if they have a patient come in on a biologic or methotrexate, for example, how long would you recommend they stop the, the medication for whilst they're on antibiotics? Sure. So they come off it when they go on the antibiotics and we restart once we feel they are off antibiotics and they're better. And that's a slightly subjective thing to say that they're better, but the patient kind of knows when, when they're on the mend. And as their rheumatoid starts to creep back, they'll be very keen to get back onto therapy. So if you come off a biologic therapy, there's a very, very high chance of relapse. But if patients do incredibly well on their biologic therapies, we do taper and reduce the dose. And often that is successful with retained remission on a lower or less than uh, licensed dose, which obviously saves money as well. Uh, but we rarely are able to completely stop the biologic. So we will pause if there's an intercurrent infection, and then we get going again, hopefully before the patient relapses, uh, once they're off antibiotics and they're certainly on the mend and feeling better. Okay, that's really useful. Thank you. And one of my last questions, I just want to touch on comorbidities and what difference that makes in terms of overall prognosis and severity of rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah, so that's a really, really important point. And because some of these comorbidities are very prevalent. So obesity affects about 30% of the adult population in the UK. If you include overweight plus obesity based on BMI definitions, that's about 70, 70% of the adult UK population. So being obese, having a body mass index of 30 or more, gives you an accelerated inflammatory profile. So there is more inflammation to suppress. Our conventional synthetic DMARs like methotrexate do not work as successfully. So the patient is more likely to proceed to a biologic therapy. And there is evidence that the TNF inhibitors and the JAK inhibitors do not work as well or as effectively in the obese population compared to the normal weight population. Fortunately, anti-CD20, anti-B cell rituximab and anti-IL-6 therapies and abatacept uh, do not seem to be as adversely impacted, if at all impacted by obesity, and they can work just as effectively in those patients. Smoking is another very important comorbidity. About 17 to 20% of the adult UK population smoke, and despite our best efforts to get people to stop smoking, many continue to do so. 
that also increases the inflammatory burden, uh, makes it less likely that mesotrexate and also TNF inhibitors will be as effective as in the non-smoking population. So we have to be careful. Smokers have an increased risk of sepsis anyway. You're putting the patient onto an immune suppressing drug regime, which further impacts the risk of sepsis. So these patients are at high risk of coming off treatment because of sepsis, antibiotics required, going back onto treatment. And if you keep interrupting treatment, so you don't get adequate or optimum control of the underlying inflammatory synovial process. So any sepsis is to be avoided for us because it means drug interruption, treatment interruption, and relapse of disease, which then leads to damage and irreversible consequences. Obese patients, beware. Um, we try hard to encourage them to lose weight. Any weight loss, 5% weight loss, 10% weight loss, does see a benefit in terms of disease activity scores. Smokers, we really try hard to get them to stop smoking, particularly because of their septic risk, because that leads to interruption of therapy. And any other patient who's at risk of sepsis, a bronchiectatic patient, a patient with diabetes, poorly controlled diabetes, they're at risk of sepsis. Sepsis means drug interruption, interruption of therapy, relapse of rheumatoid. And then of course, probably the final really big area of comorbidity which impacts upon good outcomes in rheumatoid is patients who suffer with mental health. Uh, patients who are vulnerable, who live alone, who are isolated, who don't have a support network, they all stand to do worse because... When you are diagnosed with a chronic disease, that's a really, really big deal. It, you know, it really affects people quite understandably from a mental, psychological health perspective. And those that are protected, who have loved ones, who have a good social network, who have friends, people to support them psychologically and physically and financially, do better. And the vulnerable, isolated person in society needs particular attention from us because they are at risk of a worse outcome. Depression, anxiety lower adherence to therapy, suspicion of therapies, trying not to take therapies because of fear of side effects. All these things lead to less than optimum outcome. As a department, as a rheumatology team, we're always on the lookout for these particularly vulnerable patients to be absolutely sure we see them monthly and we support them. And we have great nurse practitioners and physician associates who offer psychological support, um, CBT when required, counselling and so forth. And there's an extremely good patient support group called the National Rheumatoid Arthritis Society, which I have the pleasure of being a medical advisor for. And they offer tremendous support, online telephone support and a lot of written information to help patients to understand their therapies, to have faith in their therapies, to encourage adherence. Because adherence begets good disease control. And then you end up with the patient, hopefully, who comes into the room and says, I wouldn't know I had rheumatoid, apart from the fact that I'm on your treatment. You can imagine how rewarding that is. It's marvellous. It's the most fantastic specialty. I've been privileged to be a rheumatologist for 25 years and be able to prevent horrible outcomes for patients by the tools we have in our toolkit and the strategy of treat to target. And we haven't got it right yet. There are still patients who don't do well in rheumatoid, but by golly, so many do really, really well compared to the days when I was a registrar in the mid-1990s. Wonderful. Thank you very, very much. I just have one more question, which is for the people out there who are considering a career in rheumatology but aren't quite sure, what would you say to them about entering rheumatology uh, at the moment? Okay. Well, the most wonderful thing about medicine is that it's got such an eclectic mix of ologies and specialties to suit all personality types. I can just tell you, you know, what it was about rheumatology which attracted me and continues to give me job satisfaction. First of all, it's a chronic disease specialty. 
So I like the idea of getting to know my patients really, really well over many years. So it's a bit like being a GP who in family medicine gets to know their patient really, really well. But here we're dealing with patients with specific inflammatory rheumatic diseases, and I know them really, really well. So that nurturing chronic disease model appeals to my personality and my style of medicine. Secondly, it is a multi-organ discipline. So we have inflammatory diseases for joints, for virtually every organ in the body, including the bone marrow, so immune cytopenias, lung disease, renal disease, lupus, Sjogren's, myositides, osteoarthritis, metabolic bone disease. We cover an awful lot of medicine. So one of the very few sort of multi-ology specialties, if you like. So I like that. That appeals to me. And then what also appeals to me about rheumatology is that we can do so much to help. You know, we understand the immune pathways that beget diseases, that we now have the tools to interfere with those pathways and make people better. And whilst there was this cliche that when you go to your medical school interview, whatever you do, don't say, I just want to make people better. But actually, to be honest with you, that's what we want to do as doctors. We want to make people better. And in rheumatology, we really, really can do that. Thanks to stories like the rheumatoid story I've gone through with you, the bench to bedside revolution, we have so much to thank our scientific colleagues for working out for us the cellular immunology, the cytokine profiles that have led to inflammatory systemic rheumatic disease, joint disease, connective tissue diseases, metabolic bone diseases. And we have the tools to make it better for many, many patients. So you get to know your patients really, really well. You have a multi-specialty, multi-organ-based discipline and you have tools in your toolkit which genuinely make a difference. And it's given me such tremendous job satisfaction over my career, and I'm still going strong, and I'm still loving it every day. Thanks very much. That's all we all want to hear. I won't take any more of your time up, but thank you very much for coming. It's been really interesting, really insightful. So thank you very much, and everyone, thanks for listening. Thank you.